0: Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles DeHart.
1: Welcome guys and gals to the Mobile Home Park Academy's weekly podcast, where we'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Bupp, and in today's show, we're going to be speaking with MAI appraiser and MH industry expert, Chuck Sherbeck. Chuck is a Senior valuation Specialist with Colliers International and is the foremost expert in commercial property valuations, including preparation of appraisal reports, supply and demand analysis, financial and site feasibility, and overall market examination. More specifically, Chuck is nationally recognized for his work within the manufactured housing niche. Now, in addition to his expertise in the MH space, he also has extensive experience in all other commercial real estate, having completed assignments in forty plus states. His past projects have ranged from office buildings, regional shopping malls, industrial facilities, and various multifamily residential developments and Now guys if you 've been in the industry for any time at all and have been involved in either park transactions that required a lender ordered appraisal or maybe you 've attended any of our industry industry 's national events that happen across the country multiple of them every year then there's a pretty good chance that uh, you've directly or indirectly had interactions with Chuck. Maybe not, but, he seems to be everywhere. I don't know. It's, it's funny, though, because we, uh, we haven't met in person yet, but we've talked multiple times and been involved in a few transactions together. But uh, he seems to be everywhere. He's well known in this industry, and you definitely want to seek him out next time you're at one of the industry events. And so I'll tell you, I'm very excited to have a, a candid conversation with Chuck about a variety of industry-related topics. But before we get into it, I have a few quick housekeeping items I want to run through. First and foremost, I... This is something I tend to forget to mention most of the time. But just so you know, we're in deal acquisition mode here at Sunrise Capital Investors. In fact, we always are in deal acquisition mode. And the reason I make mention this is because we're looking for opportunities to pay huge finder's fees for deals, for good opportunities. And so if you're out there on the hunt yourself, or if you come across something that seems interesting, yet you don't have the ability to take it down, please think of us. We've paid multiple finder's fees out over the past few years, and would love to put some money in your hand for a good opportunity. Additionally, we can come into a deal as a capital or operational partner, or both, if you have a lead on something that maybe you'd like to try to take down, but you just can't seem to do it on your own. Please reach out to us via our website, you can go to the Contact Us page at sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and just drop us a line and uh, we'll reach back out to you. Also, this might be a perfect way for you to to get into the business all while working with a group that has a a strong track record like we do. Next up, we just opened up our second tranche in our Mobile Home Park Growth and Income Fund. And so if you're an accredited investor and you're interested in partnering with us on our own acquisitions, please visit our secure investor portal by going to invest.sunrisecapitalinvestors.com you can find our PPM there and also our overall investment summary. You can download all our information. It's on a secure website. And lastly, guys, if you happen to be in the Tampa Bay area, I'd love to connect with you during your visit. Again, you can reach out to us through our website, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com to submit a message and I'll get back to you. And one cool thing is that if you make the trek and come visit us at our office, which is located in Safety Harbor, Florida, which is only about 20 minutes away from the Tampa International Airport, we're on the other side of the bay, I'll personally treat you to a tour of the Jacobson Manufactured Home Plant that is literally one block away from our office. So it's kind of cool uh, that we literally basically can get to see where the sausages are made right down the road from our office. So if you've never seen a mobile home park being made from basically the, the frame up, you come visit us at our office here at Sunrise and uh, and I'll treat you to, to lunch and, and take you down the road here and, and show you how you know, again, how mobile homes are made again from the frame up. So guys, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Chuck Sherbeck to the show. Chuck, how are you doing today, my friend? Good, good. Glad to be here. Yeah, looking forward to, to chatting with you and talking shop. And uh, again, as I'd mentioned you know, you and I have been involved uh, on a few transactions together. We've, uh, we've spoken a few times, but never had the opportunity to meet, which is funny because we end up being at a lot of the same events, but our paths have crossed many times. We've done some business together, but, you know, uh, and haven't met yet in person. But you seem to be everywhere. You've been in the industry quite some time, um, longer than most. And so, with that, what I love, Chuck, if you could, I'm going to kind of pass this back to you for a few minutes. And for those that aren't familiar with you, that don't know too much about you or your background, maybe take a few minutes. Tell us a little bit more about you and how long you've been in this business.
2: Yeah, well, so I went to college, uh, was a comparative studies major. uh, I got got married three days after I graduated and um, worked in a variety of jobs. Initially, I was going to become a professor, but that didn't happen. I got a job at a bank. Then a friend of mine worked at an appraisal firm and uh, a, a position opened up there. So I started working there around 2001. My first focus was nursing homes. The person that I was working under at that time, that was what, what uh, he was working on. And then um, in about 2005, I switched to a, a different manager and started working on manufactured housing. And I, I went, you know, I would say back then, maybe 20% of what I did was manufactured housing. Mm-hmm. By 2007, 2008, it was, it was getting a lot closer, to 100%. And it, it is just about 100% now. I will do apartments at, at time. Some of the people I oversee um, do other other types. I've got a team of about four or five people that range from being appraisal assistants, which is how you get into the business, to uh, certified general, which is a, a step down from the top level, which is where I am, which is an MAI, which is um, a designation given by the Appraisal Institute. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So I, I focused on that. And then the recession happened. And it was, uh, you know, prior to the recession, most of our business was TMBS lenders, commercial mortgage-backed attorneys. So they sort of, you know, went belly up for a little bit. They're back, but they went belly up for a little bit. And um, we moved from the firm that we, a group of us, there were about four or five of us moved from the group we were at then to, it was at the time PGP valuations, but would eventually become Colliers. And so so we moved over over there and they had a different client base, which helped us through the recession. And we started doing some, a lot of jobs for special servicers. And then, you know, stuff sort of came back and we've been going strong. We've been doing a lot of portfolio valuations in recent times. It's, there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry and we've sort of helped lenders get their hands around what's going on with those sort of transactions. So.
1: Okay. Okay. Sort of the arc of my career. Yeah, well, that's that's quite extensive, and uh, just you probably don't have the exact number, but just to give us uh, an idea, of the depth of your experience. I mean, how many parks do you think you've appraised in your in your career? See
2: that the trick is getting
1: you know how many. Sometimes I'll talk about how many appraisals
2: I've done versus how many parks, and that's because you know we'll we'll do I'll do one multiple times. So, you know, I know this year our group, and and that includes, you know, appraisals appraisals across the country. But this year, well, last year, 2018, we did 1,500, I think is the
1: number. Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah. And so I do somewhere between, on average, I'd say between 5 and 10 a month. So I've probably done over 1,000 appraisals of communities uh, over the course of my career of manufactured housing would be my estimate. Yeah. That's Not all inc- necessarily yeah. unique, but yeah.
1: That's incredible. Yeah, that's been- what do you think like over the last like year or two, a couple of years, um, what do you think the actual ratio is of refinances versus you know sales transactions? You know, I would say what I've done,
2: it's, it's hard for me to put an exact percentage. It, it seems it's like Just I've ball done ball. about 50, 50 at okay. least. Okay. Um, I've seen, you know, I will do for one client, we, we appraise their properties every year for their investors. So I'll do some of that. I know I just did a search um, to, to give you kind of the scope of, of sales. I, you know, I did a search on, I did a search on CoStar. Well, actually, so we've got our database. We also subscribe to CoStar and Real Capital Analytics. Those are three data sources. Well, two mm-hmm. data sources that are on that are out there and you know I'm I'm sorting through, but I've got, you know, a couple thousands records of sales transactions over the last three years. So mm-hmm. I pulled 2016, 2017, 2018. And I'm work- currently working on a, a sales report that'll show trends and prices and cap rates and stuff like that. But that's sort of, you know, you're talking over the last couple of years there's been several thousand of sales uh, of communities. And that includes stuff I think I, on the low end I I cut it off at, at twenty home sites. So
1: almost okay. to the as well, much as there would be. Let's talk about some of those trends. I mean, you know, from from the time that you started uh in, in this space doing valuations in the MH space to, to today, obviously we went through, you know, a pretty significant downturn. Uh, you know, the the great recession of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And so you kind of uh you were in the space leading up to that. You went through that and now You know, one of the biggest and longest run-ups in history is where we are today. And so, generally speaking, what are some of the big changes uh, that that you've seen take place in our space? Well, we have a 10-year cap rate chart that I'm currently working on updating. Send me an email after
2: this, and and I will send you uh, a copy of that chart that you can post on your site. But, so, before, you know, things are going pretty strong before the recession, and then, you know, cap rates went pretty low. And then, when we say 2009-2010, things started, you know, coming down in terms of cap rates. And, and for those uh, out there, you know, capitalization... For the newbies, capitalization rate is the ratio between the income, the net operating income of the property, and the overall value. So, you know, if a property has, you know, 100000 an in income and it's worth a million, then it's a ten cap, just for simple math. So cap rates, I can't remember exactly what they were back then, but you know, I, I do remember during the recession, there's one specific property uh, in, in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. I praised it at like a seven and a half cap in 2009, and I was asked at a convention, how, you know, what, what was I smoking? I and mean, how could it be that low? And <laughs> that property then sold again as a, a sale. I can't remember. I think it sold at, at a six seven five, and I and I just appraised it again, and it was at a six cap. So there has been a lot of there's a lot a lot of big money coming into the space, and a lot of people are chasing a lot of deals, especially in the quality investment space, right? Especially in the you know, you know all multi section nice clubhouse pool your a and b class four or five star communities there's a lot of corporate money chasing these and there's there's a lot of there are people that that you know i thought would be in the industry forever and and they, they're still in the industry but i've seen whole companies get purchased by larger companies a lot of consolidation in that regard so all of
1: that is kind of pushed down cap rates so. sure sure yeah, now do you see like a lot of that consolidation is a lot of that happening from an institutional source I mean, at at some point, you know, it becomes very challenging when you, I've seen things trade in the, um, you know, the, the sub-six range or even the sub-five range. You know, do you see that most of the, the buyers in, in those types of high-quality assets are getting their source of capital from non-traditional means? I mean, you know, maybe sovereign wealth funds or life companies. To me, it seems like they must yeah, have so- a lower cost of capital, correct?
2: Yeah. So there are equity investors coming to the space that have... Major factors behind it. A lot of, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's you know, it's like you no know, Blackstone, um, purchased into the space.
1: Carlisle Group, that, they're here.
2: That, yeah, yeah. Th- those are those are names that that I've seen on CoStar and in public. I know some other names as well that I can't reveal that have come into the space, and they're, and they're all you know, institutional, big time investors. So, cost capital for these, yeah, they're somewhat reduced that, you know, there are, yeah, there's a lot of money behind these, these buyers and
1: and they're, yeah, they're well, well, well capitalized. So do you see, you know, one of the, one of the challenges that, that exists in this space and it's just, it is what it is. And I think it's going to change over time is the, you know, when you compare it to multifamily apartments, you know, a lot, a lot of owners, typically even large equity groups don't also in-house their property management arm, right? They outsource it to a third-party national firm that that essentially handles the the you know the day-to-day property management of, of those individual assets. There are a few in our space that exist, third-party management firms, but nothing to the scale of what you might find in the multifamily space. And so it creates a, an additional level of challenge from an operational standpoint when you buy into the manufactured housing space. So do you foresee any kind of challenges in the long run with some of those, you know, some of the groups that are buying larger portfolios that are you know, paying very, very aggressive cap rates? Cause at the end of the day, some communities might, you know, you might say that there's uh, communities that are easier to operate than that of their brother multifamily apartment. But for the most part, I'd say when you compare apples to apples, you know, there's some uh, significant challenges in the manufactured housing space from a operational efficiency standpoint. Do you see that posing a problem at some point in the future where people are kind of diving in, putting all their eggs in, and it ultimately might not turn out how they originally planned because the operational side is going to pose some additional challenges to them?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the the challenge that, you know, well, the challenge that, of the your traditional investors in the space, so the people that you know, some of these communities where the somebody's father or grandfather built the community and it's own the second and third generation. The uh, you know the the collapse that little history, the collapse that happened in you know the housing collapse that happened in single family residential that kind of triggered the recession. A similar collapse in housing finance occurred in in manufactured housing space, kind of close to the time. That I got into being an appraiser in 2001-2002. Uh, so some there's a major lender of manufactured homes that you know went bankrupt or stopped lending rather, which you know limited the ability of, of people to sell homes. So people, you know, in the 1980s and and whatever that owned communities and the dealerships actually sold the homes to people and sent them to the communities and filled them up. That sort of pipeline went away. So what happens? Sort of in the 2000s, all the way up to today, is, is people, owners started to have to figure out how to sell homes in their communities, finance them, and do all that. So, so they've had, owners have had to become more than just property owners. They've had to become retailers, lenders, things like that. Now, there are companies out there that will help you do that. I mean, there are, there are lenders out there now, 21st century. Being one of the major in triad, and really, I guess that's a more recent trend. Is you know, twenty first century came out with the cash program, which is really, really to me that that almost revolutionized the industry in a certain sense because people were starting. So before the cash program came out, I was seeing absorption rates of one home site per month at best. Like I, I, somebody asked me to do two home sites per month, and I told them they're crazy. The cash program came out and. Somebody was telling me they were doing four and I told them they were lying. They showed me their, <laughs> their actual numbers and you know, I'm like, Wow, okay, you've got the numbers to back it up. I'm, I'm happy to do this. And and that's a, one of the things working in the industry so long is you start to develop, you know, like general rules of thumb, like you know, like what I said, you know, one one home site per month is as much as it's gonna be reasonable things change in the industry. You got to be able to adapt and understand what was going on. And, and that's one of the things that changed these, you know, people are able to, I, I actually, now the question is, and, and this is something that I don't necessarily directly see because I, I don't, I don't value the homes and, and I, I don't really see under the, uh, under the hood in terms of what are people doing in terms of selling and financing the homes. So I, I don't know the entire, how that all works, but you know, the one one case that I saw, somebody was actually leasing up at fourteen home sites a month, which wow. was way beyond. Yeah, they were offering zero percent financing for ten years. I did the math on it, and it was a giveaway of like my estimate was ten thousand dollars on home site. So, yeah, <laughs> you you pay that much of somebody's home, and you you tend to you tend to be able to sell the home a little bit easier. Yeah. So it's it's you know. It's how much you're going to get away to, to lease up your community. You
1: know, in that I, sense, it, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's where, you know, I, I think a lot of the risk comes into play. Maybe I'm just overly conservative, but and we, we are set up with 21st and we've used them in a number of communities. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I do think that there's underlying risk there, at least for the park owner. Uh, you know, the park owner does guarantee the um, the buyer. And so if that buyer defaults, uh, ultimately the, the park owner becomes responsible and you know the fear I have in knowing what happened during the uh, late '90s, early 2000s, the chattel crisis is, you know, folks that weren't really qualified, just like that happened in 2008 with single-family homes. Folks that aren't overly qualified aren't putting much skin in the game and getting approved for a loan. That you know, should anything change in their life, uh, whether it be a uh, you know loss of income or you know uh, an event with a vehicle, you know, they 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 have to spend money to fix their car versus paying their their home mortgage, whatever it might be, turns into a catastrophic event, and uh, and, and defaults happen. So I, I do. We'll see how it all plays. I do have some fear with, like you know, the twenty first program, as far as. You know, default rates are concerned. And uh, so you know, for the most part, we're yeah. kind of going into it eyes wide open. And, and a lot of times we actually just will go in and let 21st finance us and then we'll turn around and do a, uh, you know, a, a lease with an option to buy or, or something similar to that structure. That way we, okay. you know, we're, not, we're not necessarily relying on 21st to qualify a buyer and only take 5% down. And which again, I, I do fear that if someone, it doesn't matter who you are, if you don't have skin in the game and it's easy to walk away when times get tough, guess what happens? You walk away. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's right. That's right. And you definitely, I mean, definitely
2: a better scenario to have, have someone with a, with a small amount of equity in the home. But, you, and also the those people, the people that, have, that I'm thinking of that have done that program are also well capitalized with some of those yep. equity investments we discussed earlier. So it's different for somebody that's like, you know, a beginner getting into the space, wanting to do stuff, figuring out the right amount of risk versus somebody that's got you know a deep pocketed partner so
1: yep absolutely what you know, let's talk about there's a couple of the trends I wanted to bring up and kind of get your your take on um one is the 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 tiny house trend and uh i don't know if the hgtv show is still around or not but obviously that you know I, th- there was a show that's been on for a number of years if it's still on today and i probably receive an email at least once a month not, not too often once a month uh, from somebody that is asking in one way or another about the opportunity, to, whether it's looking at a community that's got some infill and they want to talk about tiny homes and, you know, asking kind of our feedback, if we've done it, you know, what's the demand look like, you know, it comes in a variety of, of forms, these questions. And we have not participated in that space. We just don't. To me, it's very market specific. I and mean, we don't really own any communities in markets where I feel, you know, they would have a significant demand for those, th- those types of homes, you know, the very small 300 square foot footprint, or maybe even smaller in some instances. But what have you seen as far as all the valuations you've done? Have you seen any kind of uptick with that type of trend? I have not seen
2: uh, on, on one level. The, the question is, should I, is almost similar to a question. Should I put, should allow people to put RVs on their lots? Mm-hmm. It's essentially some of these, these tiny homes, especially the ones you see on those shows are, are to me, are nothing more than like DIY RV trailers. So, I mean, there are people, and, and we talked about this earlier with regard to some of the product we saw at the, the Louisville show. You know, there are small, uh, like Legacy Scott, what they're calling... One guy uh, One guy I talked to referred to it as a, as a tiny home mansion because they're <laughs> they're like, bigger than that what... Is counterintuitive? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they're bigger than what your normal... I you know to me I I looked into walked into some of the spaces and and they were they were also pitching them as hunting cabins and you know yeah. for that you know if if I was going camping it's a very nice tent you know I, I would be happy to stay in the space um, I I would look at and I don't I don't know what other product other if I was if I were to do that I would I'd, I'd want a really good quality one because I, I don't but. You know, I, I've actually talked to other owners that I know about this. And because there, there's actually, in the in the 40s and 50s and a little bit earlier, there was what is known as, as park models. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this. And they, mm-hmm. were they were smaller. They're like miniaturized versions of the homes that people could kind of demonstrate on. they don't, uh, manufacturers stopped making those. So you didn't have, so you have a lot of communities where there are smaller sites that won't hold your, your traditional, current, modern trailers. So, you know, the tiny home conceptually makes sense there. But I would want to have a, a home that is was built by somebody in, in the industry. I, I wouldn't want someone bringing in their tiny home into a community just that, that they made in their parents' backyard. Sure, sure. Now but, yeah. Okay. But, and I think I think it does make sense. You know, maybe you have a maybe you have a community with a lot of smaller spaces or, you know, you could get approved by a local zoning board. I don't think that would be likely, but let's say you could. Um, you could probably go to one of the manufacturers and say, I've got 40 sites and I'd like to discuss making a run of homes for these, you know, with the right volume, if you were confident to sell them. Of course, I would I would want to have a deep, deep-pocketed equity investor <laughs> to do it, but you know, you could probably find a, a manufacturer that would put those homes out there and, and put them mm-hmm. on, but I don't see it as a, as a major trend. I think a lot of things, times in this industry, if somebody's not comfortable doing something, they don't tend to do it. Uh, like I know I know one major owner-operator, and if we're talking about trends, I'll bounce off to a different trend. Up in Michigan, there are a lot of communities that are approved for like, let's say they've got hundred home sites they are actually approved for 150 and they have some surplus land in the back. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of owners who've been in space forever who would buy that but not develop out that space. I know other people that are like buying communities, paying a lower cap rate for that surplus land because they're approved to build out because they're growing that strong. Hmm. So if you're not built to dig up the dirt and put in the roads, you're not comfortable doing that. And the same thing goes back to the smaller homes. I don't think the industry is, is built for that yet. Uh, but the same thing I would say in, in terms of rental homes, which is another thing that's sort of shifted mm-hmm. back and forth, You know, prior to you know, 2012, the, the constant mantra I heard from everybody is people never do a rental. It just doesn't make any sense. And then I went out on inspections with owners that I know, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we we started doing about ten uh, percent rental homes in our community." <laughs> so I think I think it's trending away from that a little bit because you just have so many people. You just have you have an affordable housing crisis that's pending on yeah. the country, and people will come and buy the homes and not rent them. So now, let me back off that, say so it is a market by market basis, and you, and you really have to when you're getting into a market, you really got to understand sort of the, the mindset of the, the people in that market. So like I appraise, right around that time period, I was appraising a, some communities in Dallas and some communities in Houston. Dallas communities had zero rental homes. Houston communities had, you know, I appraised some communities that had a hundred percent rental homes. Um, and we were trying wow. to figure out how to do the valuation on the homes. So that, I mean, the Houston model was gangbusters. And, you know, another thing is in the Carolinas, I know of an investor that has a bunch of smaller communities that are 100% rental and they are doing, all the residents are also Section 8. Now that would make me very nervous, but the deal is that they are viewed by the Section 8 program in that state as a single family home. Mm -hmm. So you were able to get very high Section 8 rents paid for by the government, and they're doing very well with that money. So it's, you know, the question is, you know, with these different trends, what does my
1: market want? And and understanding that market is key. Hey guys, Kevin Bupp here with Sunrise Capital Investors. As you are hopefully already well aware, if you've been a listener for any period of time, my goal has always been to provide you with as much value as I possibly can through my two podcasts, Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow, and the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. As our audience continues to grow, literally, we've been downloaded millions of times by folks in over 125 countries. I've had thousands of people reach out looking to get involved in our niche. And that's the phenomenal niche of mobile home park investing. For those that don't know, I've been a full-time real estate investor for nearly 20 years now, and I've personally invested in and have owned apartment complexes, various commercial properties, hundreds of single-family rentals, and I've interviewed some of the most successful investors in just about every other asset class, and I've arrived at this one very simple conclusion. Mobile home parks are hands down the best investment I've found to date. Why? They provide investors with the best risk-adjusted returns out of any other real estate sector that I've seen. Investing in real estate can get complicated, and I really want to simplify this process for you. If you're someone who wants to diversify away from the uncertainty of Wall Street and allocate a percentage of your real estate portfolio to mobile home parks, but maybe you don't have the time nor the inclination to personally locate good deals yourself, then our team will do it for you. At Sunrise Capital Investors, our team specializes in the acquisitions and management of undervalued and highly profitable mobile home parks. And we are now providing accredited investors with an opportunity to participate directly alongside our team and our up and coming deals. And let me say this. I believe that we are hands down the best in our space at sourcing highly profitable off market deals. That's really what makes us unique in this niche and as investment managers. As stewards of your capital, we truly are aligned with our investors. We've structured our investment fund so that we as a company are incentivized in the same way the investor is, which is through the performance of the investment itself. In addition, we want to make sure that we not only make money for our investors, but that they understand how it's being made. That's why we provide our accredited partners with a private monthly podcast that walks them through the detailed updates on how their investment is performing. And we're very transparent, providing with the good, the bad, and the ugly at times. And so if you'd like to learn more about the partnership opportunities with our team here at Sunrise, please go visit sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and click on the investors link to get signed up. It's absolutely free and you'll get placed on the priority list of when new opportunities come along. Also, feel free to call us at 833-CASHFLOW-WITHOUT-THE-O. Again, that's 833-CASHFLOW-WITHOUT-THE-O. And one of our investor relations team members will help you schedule an appointment to speak with one of our managing principals. If you have questions, go ahead and schedule a call, and let's get on the phone and talk. And with that, guys, I'd like to leave with one last thought. From the time that I wake up in the morning to the time that I lay my head down the rest of the evening... My number one priority with everything I do, whether it be recording this podcast, working for our investors, helping each of you reach your investment goals, to providing a great experience to each of our residents who reside in our communities, is to add huge amounts of value to everyone that I come in contact with. Now, with that being said, I look forward to the opportunity of bringing value to you through Sunrise and through this podcast. Thank you for your time. Now, let's go and get back to the show. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, we we prospect in a lot of different states and you know, I see very uh similar like state trends uh like there's certain states uh South Carolina being one of them, North Carolina, actually both so both Carolinas and then, you know, certain parts of other states like, you know, Western Virginia or or um, you know, certain geographic locations of Tennessee to where there's definitely a predominance of rental homes versus resident owned homes and, uh, you know, sometimes entire communities, uh, you know, some of the, the, you know, the, the Southern States as well, like Alabama. I see it, it's quite common as well. And it gets market by market, but you know, the, the whole idea of, of not, you know, I don't want any rental homes in our community. You know, that that business model doesn't work. I think in a perfect world, It'd be great not to have that model as part of our business, not have to worry about having rentals and having the normal turns that are associated with, you know, a, a multifamily or apartment property or single family home rental, right? Because those people more than likely are probably going to turn every 12 months. You're going to turn at least 40 or 50% of your, of your rental inventory every, every 12 months. Maybe not, again, market specific. But at the end of the day, if you want to fill vacancies in your community, and, you know, you've got that that lower, uh, you know, smaller absorption rate, you know, if you're only filling one, a couple home sites a year on the sales side, then you got to kind of, you got to make a decision at that point, you know, like, do I truly want to fill this up? Am, am I comfortable with getting involved in the rental model? Or do I want to go to slow trot and maybe take five or 10 years to truly fill up this entire community? All the while, you're going to lose other people along the way. And then in addition to that, you've got situations where folks die, they pass, their heirs don't want their trailer. What do you do in that situation? Right? I mean, I think that's a lot of times where you, where folks end up with rentals, uh, you know, in a perfect world, you'd be able to gain title to that and turn around and sell it to an end consumer. But that's in a perfect world, you know, you might have to succumb to renting. And I think that's a lot of what I've seen a lot of the, the communities that we've purchased over the years that have a smaller percentage, uh, smaller percentage of rental units. That's Basically, what's kind of transpired is uh, over the years, the owner never really liked rentals, but he just, he had to deal with it. He acquired them, but for many different reasons, but a lot of times they were resident owned to start. And then they, over the years, they turned into rentals because people abandoned them or, you know, he didn't want it moving out of the park. So he bought the home from the, the resident so that they can move on and, again, turned it into a, a rental unit. So it's interesting to see that trend kind of change because I've only been in the space since, you know, 2011, 2012. And even then, just, just in that short period of time, there's been a significant change. And I, I know you go back way farther than that. And, you know, back when you first jumped into the space, I'm sure the rental portion of the market was very, very small, right, in comparison to the resident-owned side of the business. But, you know... It, yeah, it, and, and,
2: yeah, yeah. And, and I think the, the perfect... I and mean, the, the ideal thing is you've got a community trying to sell homes be open to rentals get your property filled up with whatever methods you can and then try and turn those rentals into owners and that's the from zero that would be the model that I would take you know Yeah yeah and that's with, that's you know,
1: what we put it up That's exactly it. it's so we we basically when we bring new homes and now we kind of have a a plan to where we we allot every Every market's a little different, but uh, on average, like we'll give, you know, bring a new home and we'll give it three months to try to find a qualified buyer that can come in and truly take that home off our balance sheet, right? And qualify for a mortgage. If within those three months that doesn't happen, we 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 move to plan B, which is a, you know, a variety of a lease with an option to buy. It's, it's many different formats, depending on what state you're in, but a lease with an option to buy. Give that a period of time. If for whatever reason that doesn't work, which normally isn't the case, uh, I've, I don't think we've ever had to go from Plan B to Plan C. Plan C would be a straight rental, but for the most part, you can get uh, someone with a lease option—you know, someone that's looking for a lease with an option to buy—much faster than you can get a qualified buyer that can go get a mortgage today. But so we kind of have that Plan B in place that allows us to continually infill and you know maintain that consistent absorption rate. And not just rely on folks that can you know truly qualify for a mortgage you know the the average demographic that that you know the the manufactured housing space serves i 'm not speaking of the the four and five star communities just the you know the normal two and three stars is a it's, it's a lowering clientele you know folks that make you know fifteen dollars now or or even minimum wage and you know it's uh they've got some blemishes on their credit that have accumulated over the years and getting a a traditional mortgage or conventional mortgage is challenging. It just is, you know, it's very rare that you find folks that have 600 plus credit scores that are in that two and a half star quality park. And maybe you've seen a little different, but that's been our general experience. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, I want to hit on another point here and I want to be respectful of your time, Chuck, you know, I always like to compare our industry to the multifamily space. It's the you know the next closest asset class, right? When you use a comparison model, and uh, at least that's that's my personal opinion. And you know, I, I do feel like the multifamily business is a little bit more advanced. There's much larger uh, sophistication as far as operators are concerned. And it seems like they 're always pushing the envelope, and you know there 's been a number of trends that have happened over probably the last decade as far as creating additional uh, ancillary income streams. you know a few to speak of would be like you know pet fees, pet rental fees, not just a normal you know pet fee when you move in you play, you pay one security a separate security deposit for your pet, but now there 's an actual monthly rent associated with you having a pet maybe it 's twenty thirty forty dollars a month. You know, some of the other ones I've seen are like, you know, boat and RV parking, you know, uh, what else? Uh, You know, power washing plans. This would be more in manufactured housing communities, Um, you know, courtesy trash pickup. And, you know, so there's just there's a litany of additional ancillary streams that that I feel like exist in the multifamily space that I'm starting to see pop up in the manufactured housing space. Is that something that you've noticed as well? And then if it is. How do you typically value those, I guess, those um, you know, those additional income streams when you're looking at a property?
2: Yeah. Well, the you know, the major one is not necessarily a new one, but the, the major other income item is, is always utility reimbursement. Right. So yep. that is something uh, and that's actually like the, the little there's uh there's a couple of companies that'll show up at, at all the shows that we go to and they they will help you convert your System to one that is friendly to recapturing as much as possible, and that to me, that's that's the best thing to look at. If you're living in a community, your first your first step is is trying to figure out how you can switch your utilities over to a resident pay because that's your utilities expense is going to be your highest increasing expense or one of them. You know, maybe taxes would be another one, but so you'd, you'd like to figure out how to get that switched over and you might, I, I would recommend even, you know, just to make it less harsh saying, you know, we'll, we'll go down $10 a month in rent, but we're going to switch over, switch over utilities because that's a much bigger impact on, on you going forward. Sure. But the other stuff that I've seen, you know, I've, there are rental, uh, you no know, one interesting that I, I've been interested in, um, a variety of different property types. And one of the interesting ones that I've, I've come across is, is co working space, which um, is just an interesting field. But I, as I was thinking about it, I've thought at times, you know, I, I wonder if you could, you know, I don't think it makes a lot of sense for most communities. But I was talking with another owner, and, you know, one of the trends in co working spaces is what's called makerspace, which is where people can go in and build stuff and do things. And a lot of communities have maintenance garages, large maintenance residents that don't get a lot of use. Some of them, I think, were even originally intended to be able to pull in homes and repair them. I also see, and, and this, this other owner was actually complaining about this, thought that my, my discussion on this made sense because he would drive, he drives around his community around and, and has someone working on their car out in front of their home, which is actually a rule violation for his community. You might, uh, one potential idea is to take one of your maintenance things and turn it into a repair garage and make it a membership fee for people to work on their cars or the power washing would tie into that as well. So if there's, there's different aspects of your company or your, your property that makes sense for that. I mean, if you have extra space in the back, self storage, I think is a, is a natural thing, especially as people downsize, you know, put in a row of self storage units. If you're, if you're able to get zoning for that, you know, mm-hmm. the, If you're able to fence off some area, RV storage makes a lot of sense. I see, I I see RV. Most of it's just like an open field at at some place, part in the community that people are allowed to park. Um, You know, fence it off, improve it, and sort of do do a pitch to the residents. Say, you know, we see all your your uh, RVs parked in this area, and we've that for a while. We want to we want to provide better security for you. In order to do that, we're gonna we're gonna charge. We're going to put some fencing around this and we're going to charge however much a month makes sense. Yeah. So I think, I think, think, you know, look at your, you know, like go to Google Earth and take a look at your, an aerial of your community, drive around and and see what, you know, most of these communities have some sort of surplus land that doesn't make sense as an addition and you're not approved for it. But you might be able to go, you might be able to go to your, your local zoning board and get approval for something like that. You know, some some sort of additional revenue. You know, in terms of how we would view it, we in terms of the income stream, it depends how big it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if it's, if it's not a significant portion, usually it's just another line item in the in the income portion of our pro forma. If it is a significant portion, it's possible that we would we would value that separately. We might apply a different cap rate to it based on trends. But I mean, it, usually it it almost has to be like a 50-50 thing. Like you have two things. Right, you have a, a self storage facility and a manufactured housing community, but as a smaller line item, we don't typically separate it out.
1: Yeah. So. Well, yeah, the struggle. I have, I'll i give you an example. We recently uh, underwrote a community that had, um, I think it had anywhere between eight and ten thousand annually in pet income fees, and so and most of these, okay. yeah, but they are mostly resident-owned homes. Made about twenty percent rental homes, but uh, but as a monthly pet rental fee and I guess the challenge with underwriting that is it, there's nothing stopping that person from selling their home and moving on. And what are the chances that the next person that moves in is going to have a pet, right? And so that that income stream could go away at any given point in time, or as we know, pets die, right? They only they, they only live a, a set period of time. And what's to say that person gets another pet after their current one passes? You know, so it's trying to determine what that value uh, or that income stream is really valued at, I, I struggle with. And it's... Yeah. I could see the argument going either way. Yeah, well, so in, in terms of like pet fees and things like that, I, I look at history and see what they've done. I mean, somebody
2: that has a dog—I mean, I, you know, our our dog passed away in October. We got two small kids. Christmas was a new dog, right? So, people that own animals tend to to replace them. So, I don't see the pet fee as a common thing, though. Got it. I don't. And if it's in the income stream, I usually underwrite it. Got um, it. Okay. I don't underwrite, but I usually include it in the high. I mean, it will get pulled, put in. You know, the, the one thing, you know, like late fees and um, administrative fees will usually go with history, but I really want it to be a small amount, right? Because if it's a large amount, then what's wrong with your community that everybody's staying late? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I mean, it's it, it, You know, it's not that I don't trust the income will continue to be there, but ideally you'd hope that it wouldn't be because, you know, it's, it's money, but it's it's not a great thing either.
1: Yeah, so. it's interesting. I mean, I, I've had many conversations with some older Mama Pop owners that literally will brag about everyone paying late, and you know it generates such a large amount of late fees on an annual, annual basis. I'm like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. That means that uh, if we buy this thing, half those people might be gone. You know, <laughs> if they're really on the brink of uh, uh, of not being able to pay that month or it rolling into a 30 day late. You know, so again, yeah. Really good. Well,
2: yeah. No, at that point you kind of ask yourself, are you a manufactured housing community or are you a check cashing place? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it right. It seems like right. the same
1: risk is involved with those. Sure. So. Sure. What, one other cool, and then we'll move on here. I'm going to, we're going to wrap it up here, but one other cool thing I've seen, uh, not, not many times, but it was an interesting additional income stream is, um, you know, they are fairly large lots, but they're mostly single walls, but they're fairly large lots. And this, this, uh, park owner, Basically, you know, a normal, I guess, a 10 by 10 shed, like a, a wooden shed. He basically rented them out. He had, he had these things on like skids so that he could literally drag them around the park and, you know, literally plop them behind any of the homes. And they're nice, they nice looking sheds. I mean, they weren't just like little metal boxes. I mean, they're legitimate sheds with, you know, shingle roofs. But he had it so where he could literally just drag them around, own the grass with his, you know, tractor or whatever he had and uh, plop it behind someone's house and he would charge $40 a month. You know as an additional uh fee to, to have that shed back there and you know us americans once we actually accumulate enough junk to fill up an extra space we very rarely ever get rid of it right <laughs> and so you had about four, i think about 45 of those in a hundred space park you know a significant amount of additional revenue those sheds probably only cost a thousand dollars or maybe 1200 bucks they surely weren't expensive and you know they were probably 10 years old so i had been paid paid over and over again for themselves uh, many times I thought that was quite interesting and just kind of throwing out ideas for those that are listening as maybe an additional income stream for your community, you know, to provide storage or build a, you know, an actual legitimate self-storage if you've got extra space uh, aside from the park itself. But one last question I want to ask you, Chuck, before we wrap it up here for the day, based on where we're at in the economic cycle, and I know you're not in the comments, but you, you I mean, you kind of are, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, at least within the space, I mean, looking at values and trends and such, do you see any big risk that ultimately might affect the industry in the coming years? And if so, what are they?
2: Yeah. So we are at the tail. Well, I don't know if we're at the tail- we might be in the middle, who knows, we're- but we're in- at part of one of the longest expansions in history. I don't know. We might be the longest since, you know, from now to the last recession. So me and my coworkers have talked, you know, on and off about when the next one's going to come. So, and what's going to happen with interest rates going forward? So, one of the ways we calculate a capitalization rate is we do what's called the band of investment technique. So, it, you take the percentage, you, you take your, um, mortgage percentage, usually 75% you times, it times, uh, mortgage costs, and you come up with the mortgage component of the cap rate. And then you do the same thing with the equity component of the cap, rate. you know, what kind of equity, you know, cash and cash return people want. And that, that blended kind of amounts, will get you what the total cap rates. Tap rates are so low because you've got pretty pretty low financing. Mm-hmm. So interest rates climb, you might see a little bit of a cooling. And and I will say this to maybe any anybody, any mom and pop that might be listening to this, you know, now's time to now's time to look to sell your community because you are likely to get you're likely to get as, as good of a price as you can on, on the community. I mean, it, it's it's as good of a market to sell your community as, as I've seen. I don't know. I can't. I, I, would, I would be a lot wealthier if I could predict, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen. But I, I think there is some risk in increasing in interest rates. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's impending. I think uh, recently there was a, people thought it was going to go up and then it didn't. So there's a little bit of a stasis there. So... Yeah, I think that's that's a potential risk, but it's hard for me to put a percentage or quantify it. Sure. Um, okay. So my read on the industry going and the, the strength strengths of it going forward is, and I'll look back to the last recession. So what what happens in the last recession? A lot of people, you know, we didn't see a big, you know, people lost their homes. We didn't see a big spike in serving apartment occupancy or manufactured housing sales or anything like that. The reason was a lot of people were moving back in with their families. Like that was a big trend. You know, it, it was, you know, people that were the ugliest community that I've ever praised was in the recession. And people were moving this, this property as a community of last resort. And they were eventually evicted from this community, even. And when they did that, they would strip the homes of everything. And they were very angry going out. And, and it, was, it, it was understandable. I don't think that's going to happen in, in the next recession. With manufacturing housing, Be- because we are looking at one of the biggest affordable housing shortages. If the economy goes down, people will probably move into family again. But I think you will. I think you will see a lot more people kind of gravitating towards the affordable end of the spectrum. It is my take. Yeah. On it. So I, this is. I don't want to say recession proof, but it is a. A good place to be in in the event of a recession.
1: Well, at the end of the day, I like to use this argument is in in any given market in the U.S., if you look at the, um, you know, the the, the manufactured housing communities that exist within that given market, again, pick any one. It's basically, you know, for the most part, the most inexpensive Form of housing available, and if you can't, if you truly can't afford to live in that community, then you probably can't afford to live anywhere, right? Unless you're going to go rent a room in a boarding house. There's really not many other cheaper options, and so if you can't live there, you're homeless. You know, and again, that's not anything to joke about at all. But I mean, we really do offer the most affordable option of housing, and it's not the, it's not, it's it's not the lowest quality, and in fact, most times it's the lowest cost, but it's equivalent to um, many. B or even A-class apartment facilities, right? You know, depending on the, the grade yeah. of the community. So look, this has been a yeah. lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on the show. For those that want to you know, reach out to you, connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Best way would be LinkedIn. So if you just go to LinkedIn and search for Chuck
2: Sherbeck, and that's, um, the last name is spelled S-C-H-I-E-R, B as in boy, B C K. Do a search for Chuck Sherbeck. There's not a lot of Sherbecks in the world. <laughs> I should come up as one of the... You could do structure, manufacturing, housing. I would be one of the you. That right there at the top. Connect with me. When I try and connect with somebody, I give them a little bit about how I hope to have the relationship benefit. Somebody that you're in the industry, you're interested in the industry, I'm very much open to connecting with people. I'll be happy to share information. We can have, start a conversation. I'd love
1: to help people understand the value of their assets and how to make decisions within the space going forward.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Fantastic. Chuck, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. Guys, that's all we have for today's episode. But uh, real quick, before we say goodbye, just I want to remind you of the um, the free gift that we offer to all the listeners that, that take the time to go leave a, a rating uh, for this podcast over on iTunes. And if you go do that, uh, we will give you as a gift the, the exact cold call script that we use in house here at, at Sunrise Capital Investors. And we do a lot of outbound calling. And we do a lot of prospecting to, uh, to to park owners, and it's how we drum up a lot of our a lot of our opportunities. And so I'd say we we bought a a number of communities last year directly from our cold calling efforts. Uh, the other ones are through brokers and also other direct marketing means. But cold calling is should be a vital part of your business. And so if you're really looking to kind of take it up a notch, you should be picking up the phone and dialing. Here's how you're going to redeem that free gift from us. Uh, after you submit that review on iTunes, go ahead and send us an email to gift at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. Just tell us who you are and uh, what your screen name was that you left the review under and we'll go ahead and shoot that cold call script out to you right away. Also, you can go to our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com and you can download a free book that we give away. It's called the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when purchasing their first mobile home park and how to avoid them. You can also listen to all the prior podcast episodes that we've recorded. I think we've got over hundred up there now. So hours upon hours of high quality content, just like we had here with Chuck today. And so really appreciate you coming and visiting us and listening into the show. And until we meet again next week, you guys take care.
0: Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter, which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.